Hey guys, I wanted to talk to you for a second about a product that I love with all of my heart. It is Athletic Greens. I take this product first thing every single morning. It is the first thing I put into my belly. It is a greens superfood powder that is actually delicious. I mix it with a little bit of water, a little bit of coconut milk, a little bit of ice, um, and I actually add their vitamin D3 to it as well. They make a great vitamin D3 product. Um, this stuff is the bomb. It really takes the thinking out of my daily nutritional wellness when I know everything in this stuff is amazing. It's filled with vitamins and minerals. It's got actually 75 vitamins and minerals. It's got prebiotics. It's got probiotics. It's got everything that you could possibly want and or need uh, to make sure that you are staying on the beam with your health and wellness. Uh, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash born, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash born, they will send 20 free travel packs with your first order. That is a lot of free product. I highly recommend this product. This is not Mike Chernow BSing you or making a lot of money on an ad here. This is me being totally honest and real. I've been using this stuff for a very long time and you should too. What's going on, podcast listeners? My name is Michael Chernow. I am a restaurateur and lifestyle entrepreneur and I am truly obsessed with living a life better than yesterday through wellness, fitness, and good vibes. I've always wondered if the drive to succeed is something we are born with or if it's something that is made over time through grit, drive, and perseverance. I get to answer that question exactly and the goal of this podcast is to talk with people that have absolutely crushed it in life and have inspired me to do the same. This is Born or Made. Today I have Adam Richman on the show. It is a very, very special episode of the podcast. Adam is a good buddy. He, as many of you know, is a TV show host, was the original man versus food host, went through a lot there, um, but has ultimately developed an incredible brand I look up to this guy. He has impacted and influenced many, many, many people over his career. I can't wait to dive in with you all. Let's get back. Ladies and gentlemen, I am incredibly excited to introduce my next guest on the Born or Made podcast. Good buddy, fellow born and raised New York City guy, which is rare. He is an author. He is a television and culinary explorer. He is a producer. There is very little this man does not do. Uh, <laughs> ladies and gents, Adam, the man, Richmond. Thanks, buddy. Thank you so much for hopping on the show. Uh, you are one of the guys that I've just wanted to have on this podcast for some time. Why don't you just take a second to introduce yourself and then I'll get into what we're going to do here. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Adam Richmond and I'm from Brooklyn, New York. And um, I went to Emory for an undergrad in international studies in French. And then I got my master's in acting uh, from Yale Drama School. And then I did a little, so little bit of sound design uh, then. And um, I had a little bit of a TV production background. Um, I worked for the Olympics for Atlanta Olympic broadcasting in 96 and, um, kind of, I put myself on a five-year plan 
coming out of Yale, and almost five years to the day, my first television show called Man vs. Food was picked up for a trial run of 10 episodes, and we shot a pilot in Memphis, and by the time we shot the third episode in Austin, we were picked up for eight more. By episode 12, we were picked up for a second season, and it did well enough that they were like, we'll just do it as long as you want to. Anyway, right now, I'm on the History Channel's Food That Built America, seasons one and two, an upcoming show of my own on History Channel called American Made, and uh, Supperman on Dave. So that's what I'm up to. And I've written a couple books. I wrote America the Edible and my very first cook. It's weird speaking to the guy who runs Seymour's, a restaurant that like I seriously frequent. Like I know your menu at Seymour's. Like I make, I make charred green onion scallion dressing inspired by Seymour's, FYI, <laughs> uh, constantly for the, for the pescatarians in my life. And actually, my buddy, shout out to my buddy, Nate Kranz, who runs the legendary venue First Avenue in Minneapolis, who never shuts up about the meatball shop. Ne- like, never shuts up about the meatball shop. But yes, I, I wrote a cookbook. I don't have a like, chain of highly successful restaurants in the hardest market in the world, <laughs> like Michael does. But I have a cookbook called Straight Up Tasty. That's, that's about the most concise intro I can give. Unmarried, disappointing my mother. At every every turn, no 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 wife, no kids. Well, listen, man. You know the the podcast that I that that we're on here today is called Born or Made, uh, and the idea here is really just to discuss and analyze and dig into the nature nurture question. It's a question that I've had for a really long time. Um, whether people like you who um, has done something that's impacted. Uh, a, a group of people's lives and you've done that and you've i mean in so many ways you've done that um and so the borner made podcast is really where i get to sit down with folks like you that have inspired me and try to figure out have you were you born with the skills to to get to where you are at today or do you think that uh they they were made over time through sheer grit, perseverance, and, you know, because in your case, thinking about your story, I mean, and I can't wait to get into your story, the way we get to the answer or to the, you know, your potential answer of this question is through your story. Let me go all the way back. But listen, you know, knowing knowing what I know about you and, you know, starting in international studies and keeping a food journal and you know, like really paying attention to the to the culinary components around you, which really sort of say culture, right? Like you're very interested in the culture around you. Um, it doesn't seem like you were necessarily like gunning towards the career that you had. It seems like you had a journey that that was a meandering journey and you just you, you you did what you what you did and it worked and so I just I I I I'm I'm sure you have a really interesting take on this question but I would love to start as early as as we can because I don't know how many people know your story from the very day one <laughs> um, but I'm very very interested yeah um, I mean I guess falling in love with food I was born in the mid seventies so this notion of you know, Pete, like you could talk to like someone, you could stand by like a subway station in Brooklyn and ask 10 people what sriracha is or what miso is or what wasabi is, and they'll all know. I remember when there were two sushi restaurants in all of Brooklyn. 
I remember when, if I wanted a different kind of soy sauce, my father, may rest in peace, had a law office in Chinatown. And that was what, like where you'd get dim sum. Like you would go to Sunset Park, you'd go to Chinatown, but it was a very different, very different Brooklyn, quite frankly. And there were so many first generation immigrant families. So my neighbors to the left of us were Syrian, to the right of us were Irish, and across the street were Sicilian. So if I played with their kids or had a sleepover, I ate what they ate. So it could be shawarma, it could be colcannon potatoes, and then it would be caponata. But I never sort of looked at it like, oh, the flavors of Sicily. It's like what Nikki and Nicole ate. It's what the sultans were eating. They had kibbeh and shawarma. They were, you know... These people were just eating the Gahagans or whatever. They're, they're just eating Irish food that they grew up eating, that they grew up having. So I guess I got interested in that. And um, my great aunt, Anne, my dad's brother, who was uh, mentally retarded uh, and Parkinson's disease, lived upstairs from us. And my aunt, Debbie, and um, hearing just stories from this older generation really helped. And because oftentimes my folks would be working. And I'd spend time with them. And my great aunt was the first one who taught me how to cook. We made a cheese omelet. It was the first thing I ever cooked. And I had eaten Kraft Singles. And I had eaten hard-boiled or soft-boiled eggs. I used to love, my mom had those egg cups that you'd like hit with a spoon and stuff. But seeing this egg and this square of cheese become something else that was, in my opinion, way... Can I curse on your podcast, Mike? Absolutely. It was way fucking better. And so I was like what is this alchemy? And plus it then gave me this profound sense of empowerment of if I know how to cook for myself, I can do for myself. How old were you then? I was, um, oh, single digits, bro. Single digits. My folks got divorced when I was really young. They, they got separated first and then they got divorced. So I grew up in a joint custody situation. So, I mean, I wouldn't peg me as older than six. And you and you can remember then just having some sort of like epiphany about food, literally thinking that. Bro, wow, this I remember the color of the bowl we whisked the eggs in. It was a white bowl that had these little blue, almost like Amish flowers on it. And it's that weird hybrid of porcelain glass that only great aunts and grandmas have. I don't know what it's actually made of. And we whisked it with a fork. She told me to add a little bit of warm water. Um, and she used to have like all the good, the good shit like in her fridge. She was the one who would make jello that somehow had magically had floating discs of banana in it. And she'd have, you know, she was just the best. So anyway, yeah, man. Um, my mom is a brilliant cook and my father, uh, may rest the peace used to say, I fell in love with your mother for her beauty, her wit, and her charm, but I married her for her steak au poivre. And, and it's just, and she's like, you know, this sweet Jewish mother from Brooklyn who like makes poached pears, steak au poivre. And uh, my pop, may rest in peace, was a, a damn fine barbecuer and griller. And so you, so you're, you, you have like cooking is in your family. There's no doubt about it. Obviously. Yeah. Just never professionally, just never professionally. Right. And then, you know, my folks got divorced and my mom, my whole life has rubbed two nickels together to make a dollar and made chicken salad out of chicken shit my whole life. Like she's just a miracle worker, that woman. 
And I think some of it had to be financial necessity also. That it is just ultimately, as most people are finding out during the pandemic, it's cheaper to cook for yourself than it is to order in or to Mm. go out to dinner. And with a single parent family, and you know what millionaires New York City school teachers are, um, it was that. And then plus, because I genuinely loved the shit, my mom was like, come learn. So I could get home from school and I could make the salad in advance of dinner. Because after my mom was working one, two jobs to keep us afloat, you know what I mean? It's not fair to just put it all on her. Like, and now you got to make us all dinner. Like, sometimes I can get up off my ass and chop some vegetables. Hey, guys, more with my guests in just a minute. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsors. I am a huge coffee fan. Um, I was introduced to Caveman Coffee a long time ago. It is a direct-to-consumer coffee company. They do whole bean coffee. They do cold brew coffee. I am massively in love with the Caveman Coffee Nitro Cold Brew. It's incredibly delicious. And as far as their whole bean coffee, I have been for a long time a big fan of their Mammoth Roast. They've also added something new, which is the Mammoth Plus, which uh, they've added MCT oil to the actual beans. So you're getting like supercharged coffee with your bag of coffee uh, in the mail. They also have this cacao butter that is beyond bananas that you can add to your coffee. It's like a superfood and has all sorts of antioxidants and is just it's just delicious. And it makes your coffee fluffy and tasty um, and very, very good sans the sugar. So hop over to cavemancoffee.com and use Born20 in the checkout and you will get 20% off. It's that simple. Cavemancoffee.com. This stuff is the bomb. It's just very, very good. So check them out. So, I mean, now that, you know, I mean, it's just, it's it's such like a, a, a nostalgic, like just listening to it makes me feel like there's a TV show that needs to be made here uh, about about your childhood. It just sounds so cozy uh, with the shawarma across the street and the, the caponata down the block and the... Uh, you know. It was till I was seven. We moved into a really rough apartment project uh, called the Starrett City Building. So it was originally supposed to be this idyllic community, but then it, it became this really rough area called Starrett City out by Spring Creek by the Bell Parkway. And that's where like I got mugged and jumped and was one of very few white kids running around and had to learn how to box and defend myself and defend my bicycle and if I forgot to take my yarmulke off when I came home, that was a guaranteed fight. So like, there's like this idyllic time when my folks were kind of still together. And then there's this period between where I was living in the, you know, this really rough area for most of the week. And then Friday after school through Saturday night, I was with my dad. And then we moved to Canarsie. And then from, we moved my first day of high school. And then I was there all through college. And then, um, I was living and working in Atlanta at restaurants because a lot of the return to the restaurant industry, I had bus tables and stuff and worked at restaurants as a kid. Can we talk about that for a second? Yeah, man. So when you were a kid, like, what do you mean when you were a kid? Like, how old? Oh, man. I was bussing tables at 
Seaview Caterers when I was about 12. And I had a potato chip stand on the corner of you and Homecrest when I was about nine. Okay, so let's talk. That's, 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 that's something that we need to dis- discuss for a minute. So my question is, if you could close your eyes and think about what propelled you to do that, what propelled you, because nine is young to be an entrepreneur, uh, <laughs> and, 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 but I can totally identify because I was selling my toys on the corner of 87th Street and 1st Avenue at the same, same age. But what can you can you just close your eyes and go back to try and understand? Yeah, yeah, I can. I, I mean, I remember clear as day. My pop had gone to the Toys R Us. There used to be a huge Toys R Us on Flatbush Avenue, and there was a store made of you know most toys like that size were made of like cardboard, heavy duty cardboard, not plastic. And I and it was like a store, and it had shelves. And my folks got me like plastic fruit. And I used to play store. I had cardboard money and fake paper money. And my dad had a, um, I was a lawyer. He had a photocopier in his office and I photocopied some dollars and I had them in my little register. So when I got older, I wanted a lemonade stand, I guess, because I had seen it in like cartoons and little rascals and eight is enough or something. I don't know, maybe. And it was actually my pop was the one who was teaching me about like supply and demand and increasing demand. So I don't know if you remember, they used to sell these long boxes of little tiny Ys. They would do the multi-pack of different chips, and then they would sometimes have like the all oh, yeah, flavor. Yeah, yeah. And the old school blue and yellow Ys potato chip, the little bag. Clear, clear packaging. Three it was like, box. It was like it was like a cardboard box, yeah. like, like a yeah. rectangular box, little tiny pouches in it with like clear, uh, like clear wrapping on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. clear wrapping. And my dad said. You know, in bars, I obviously not been in a bar. They have peanuts on the bar and pretzels to make you more thirsty, so you drink more. So we were both like, "Oh, so I'll get potato chips, sell the potato chips, so people buy more lemonade." And we got a tub of Country Time, and we made it with just like ice and water from home. I have my store, I have my cooler, I have my little teeny cardboard register, and I put a sign out and. Uh, I'll never forget though. I, I could, I know, I, I could see it in my mind's eye. So I made my profit. I was like, yeah. And then my dad taught me about operating costs. Yeah. And I was like, huh? And so he like took back because he had laid out the money clearly for the potato chips and for the the mm-hmm. tea and whatever. And I was like, what the fuck, Dad? Yeah. Like, what are you doing? And I was so hurt. He said. That's how a business is run. He said, when we go into, I think there was a shoe store called Bronca. He said, when we go to buy you shoes at Bronca, they had to buy those shoes to then sell you those shoes. So they first have to spend money to get money. So they can't count the money. So I'm like, he had to sit there. So if we spend, I don't know, $30 on shoes and it costs them $10, they don't make $30. They make $20. So I remember just going, Oh, like, you know, I'm sitting here going, man, my owner's equity has really shit on this thing. I got And, you know, like my pop, like, obviously was not going to leave me on the corner. He, his law office was dressed up the street. But, yeah, he was not going to leave me there. But I remember I was sitting there. He's like, Ad, come on, advertise a little. And I was like, what are you talking about? He said, when we go to Brighton Beach, 
and the people have, because we used to do impressions of like the vendors on the beach, and they go, ice cold soda, ice cold beer here, ice cold water, you know, whatever, good humor bars, whatever. So he's like, come on, like those guys are letting you know what they have. You got to do it. So it was like weird. This guy who's now on television, who's like had the meat sweats and had to go into a freezer because my face was so burnt from hot wings. I was like super, super timid. And I'm like, get your lemonade here. <laughs> lemonade, potato chips, lemonade. And that's hilarious. You know, and I think that there's something it's even in life's little instruction book. They always say, you know, buy, always buy like lemonade from kids or buy Girl Scout cookies from kids on a table in front of the store. And I think that's a good rule of thumb. They always say, you know, wave at kids at a bus stop. I don't know. I, 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 I have bought lemonade from kids and it, <laughs> my lemonade experience has been, but that's not really the point. I think it's just about encouraging that entrepreneurship. And when kids, especially now, could be spending days in front of a PlayStation, an Xbox, a tablet, social media, and they're choosing to be out doing stuff. That was, that was huge. And, um, I never thought about having a, I, I, I kind of thought about having a career in food, but let's be honest again, like I just turned 46 last week. Happy birthday. There was no notion of a celebrity chef when I was growing up. There were fancy restaurants that people wanted to get a table at. But apart from like Julia Child or the Frugal Gourmet or, uh, and I loved cooking programs, loved them. But, and my stepmom, my folks, um, my, my dad met my stepmom when I was nine and they married my first year of high school. So I guess almost five years later. And she was really into cooking and she came from the fashion world and, you know, she influenced my life tremendously. Because she loved to cook and cook all kinds of crazy shit that my family never did. Linguini with white clam sauce and ceviches and all this stuff. Because she was in this fashion world and had traveled and had lived with a Brazilian soccer player. And so it was kind of this mishmash as different foods came into my life. Because my mom wasn't making quotidian Jewish shit. She could do the matzo balls and the chicken soup. More with my guest in just a minute. I love Whoop, one of the coolest pieces of technology on the market today. It is a fitness tracker. I've been wearing a Whoop for probably about a year and a half. The beauty of this product is that it actually tells you more about recovery than about training. Uh, since I've been listening to my Whoop, I have become a much better, much more optimal athlete and I listen to what it tells me. If it tells me to take the day off, I do. And what happens? The next day I train much, much harder and I tend to get bigger gains when I listen to the Whoop app. Uh, it tracks something called heart rate variability, which is actually the amount of time in between your heartbeats. The more variability between the heartbeats, the more recovered you are. As long as you literally wear the wrist fitness tracker, listen to the app when it tells you when to recover, uh, how to recover, when to train, and how to train, you will be a better athlete, 
period. You should hop over to whoop.com, that's W-H-O-O-P.com, and put in promo code CHERNOW, C-H-E-R-N-O-W, and you will get your first month free. It is well worth it. Highly recommend it. All right, so we're so you're 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 an entrepreneur at nine years old. You're working in restaurants. I'm assuming that you got your you were you were busting tables and you ended up working at a number of different restaurants. And that was because you just simply wanted cash in your pocket, right? I mean, I'm assuming you wanted to have cash. Yeah, I mean that's a hundred percent right. Saving up between years, I worked at a Red Robin. I worked um, at a bunch of places, and then eventually. I got sort of on the job training when someone had a kitchen person. I don't want to get into it. I had like a little bit of legal trouble and the chef knew I was interested and let me sort of take over on a few things and then kind of talk my way into a few other jobs along the way. And then when I began acting, it was just nice. But yeah, it, it went from being, I wanted money in my pocket to I'm going to support myself as an actor because I had gone to Emory to become a doctor. I was a Westinghouse scholar and had done all, one of these science awards and taking AP sciences, and I just didn't love it anymore. I just didn't want to do it anymore. And uh, I went to school my freshman year at Emory, and first semester I was like, I, and second semester my grades went in the trash, went in the absolute trash. I I had never had freedom like that, you know. My mom is a, a teacher and a great parent and she had to be a good parent in a shitty neighborhood, a really bad neighborhood. She was mugged with me at knife point coming back from Simcastora in our elevator. Wow. Like, I remember my mother and I got mugged on the corner of 86th street and second Avenue walking out of a drugstore. I was like five. I couldn't have been older than five years old. And we both got mugged broad daylight. Crazy. And like, you want to defend your mom. You want to defend yourself. You're confused. It's, to see the person who's always strong when you're scared, scared, crazy. Anyway, um, but I didn't love it anymore. And I, I went away to Emory and second semester, I was on the track team, pledging a fraternity, had a wicked breakup, like a horrible breakup. Like the first girl you ever say, I love you too. Like, From uh, back in Brooklyn or someone that you met, at, you met in, in school? At Emory. Someone I met at Emory. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very bad person. Very bad, bad individual. And um, I just, I think I was not ready for the freedom and was not ready for the balancing act of bio and chem and macro. It was just too heavy a course load. My attention was all over the place and it wasn't, you know, my books and stuff. So then I eventually switched majors to international studies and my grades began to go up. My parents were a little more comforted. Then all of a sudden on a $5 bed junior year, I start acting. And because I, I, um, a fraternity brother had seen me in a sketch and he said, listen, um, Emory has a union, Actors Equity Union theater company. You should audition. I said, yeah, maybe I will. He's like, dude, I want you to audition. And this, this uh, guy had transferred out of Emory and came back, um, but he had gone out to L.A. and was in that movie Hocus Pocus and whatever and came back. And I auditioned and I got in, I got a lead and uh, I met 
people that were just kind of truer to themselves than the lion's share of a lot of the people I was meeting in the fraternity world. And I spent the next two years of school on that line, which was like its own, which great because I got to sort of feed both masters. So, so you are at this point, you're like, you're like, fuck the, the doctor thing. The science isn't working out. You start getting into acting and you, and do you like, do you, are you just all over it? Do you love the acting thing? Is there, a, is, well, that's, that was a dilemma, right? Cause I was still a member, a proud member of the AE Pi fraternity, Epsilon chapter at Emory. And I, I was still doing Antigone and I was doing this Irish play and I was doing scene class and monologue class. And, but I decided I really wanted to give it a shot. And Atlanta at that time was not a very expensive place to live. And the non-union work that I was able to get was remunerative enough that I could live. I lived with roommates, of course. So I just decided I'd give it a go. And again, restaurant stuff was there for me in between because it left me time to audition during the day and learning about learning how a real restaurant worked. I mean, it was just eye opening. I, I didn't know how much from when I had been a waiter at Red Robin. I know it sounds so fatuous. Like there's more than just being a waiter at Red Robin, really? But yeah, I needed, I needed that primer. And then so when I worked for Ono, I was in Atlanta booking work and doing pretty well. And then I got into an apprentice, unpaid apprenticeship at Actors Theater of Louisville. And I had to collect food stamps and just hustle. I'm not going to get into all the stuff I had to do to keep money in my pocket because not all of it was above board. But that's also the year my dad died. And so you're like, I'm in a hurricane. I've got nothing to hold on to. You know, it's Louisville. I found out my dad's blood pressure was falling and he was already in the hospital. And because it's Louisville, the, the next flight wasn't until the morning and I got home. It was already too late. Mm. Um, so you come back and like the one thing I had was, you know, as a Jew, you're not normally supposed to be around like music and arts and stuff. If you're sitting Shiva or like for the year, you're supposed to grow a beard and everything. And um, my stepmom, uh, told me that my dad would want me to finish that apprenticeship out. And I thought I'd honor his legacy and do just exactly that. So I came back to Louisville and then I booked some acting work in Atlanta, almost straight out of Louisville, drove from Louisville to Atlanta, uh, did these plays and then drove back to New York and started pounding the pavement with a copy of backstage and started doing the damn thing and getting, trying to get restaurant jobs. So I put myself on a five-year plan coming out of Yale. Can I just stop you for a sec? Hey guys, we're going to take a quick break here. We will be right back. A system is a brand that you guys should know about. It is a wellness company that I learned about a few years ago. They have a number of different products that I use and they kind of market them as systems. So it's, it's a simpler way to apply, right? 
There's a skincare product that is a three-part system, a face wash, a daily moisturizer, and an overnight moisturizer. They also have uh, a supplement pack that they send out with that skincare system. It's a daily supplement. They launched something called Radical Relief recently, which is probably my favorite thing to use on a daily basis in regards to supplements and CBD. Uh, There is a roll-on CBD stick Uh, that has this like cold metal ball that you roll it on with. It's got menthol in the CBD formula, so it's got this really nice sort of like icy hot feeling to it. It is truly unbelievable. I've used a lot of CBD over the years, and this product really stands out for me. I use it all day, every single day. The other piece of that system is a two-pill daily supplement that is truly spectacular. They've come up with uh, a a formula for anti-inflammatory purposes, and this is amazing. It also is paired with a full-spectrum CBD pill. Say goodbye to Advil. Say goodbye to ibuprofen. This stuff is amazing. Uh, Check out Assystem for all their incredible products. If you go to Assystem.com, that's A-S-Y-S-T-E-M.com, and put in promo code CHERNOW20, that's C-H-E-R-N-O-W, the number 20, at checkout, you will get 20% off everything on the website. So check out a system. I use all of their products, their skincare, their radical relief, and their supplements. They are amazing. Highly, highly recommend it. I would not tell you guys something that I did not believe in and use on a daily basis. So, so real quick, Emery finished, come back to New York. How long are you in New York before you get to Yale? Like, when do you go to Yale? So it was Emery, Emery to 96, acting in Atlanta until late 97. So then 97, the 97, I go to Actors Theater of Louisville for uh, the apprenticeship. Um, and I'm there doing some like pretty long, pretty significant productions. And uh, like the premiere of Dinner with Friends and all these things. 98 uh, is when my dad dies. I came back to New York after doing two other shows in Atlanta in 98. Um, 99, I was uh, uh, doing survival jobs at a French investment bank and waiting tables and doing anything. All in New York. All in New York. And I had, ironically enough, I applied to Yale three times. The first year I suicided, it was the only place I had applied and I got waitlisted. The next year, I there was a chance of me getting into a school on the West Coast, but having just lost my dad the year before, I wasn't ready to be that far away from my mom. And then I got into Yale in 2000. And then so I did Yale 2000, got my master's in May of 03. And the ironic, the, the thing that's so ironic so that's May of 03, and then I begin the five-year plan. Man vs. Food got picked up as a series May of 2008, almost five years to the day. Five years and three days, Man vs. Food got picked up. Tell me about that experience, Man vs. Food, because by the way, I think could very well be one of the most beloved shows in food television. Thank you, Dean. Everybody... You know, I I remember when it came out, it came out like a year before the meatball shop. I was so pissed off that I could not figure out a way to get your ass over to the meatball shop (laughs) to to, to just eat as many meatballs as possible. 
I would have loved to have come. In fact, so that, you know, New York was in the first 10 episodes where I was like tomato ketchup. And um, it was my agent that I had signed with out of Yale. So my agency um, used to send out these uh, industry-wide, uh, agency-wide uh, emails, excuse me, about casting notices, you know, Discovery Channel looking for blonde, bilingual, Spanish-speaking scuba diver kind of shit. And mm -hmm. so I lived in this basement apartment where I was illegally getting a little bit of broadcast TV, which you can get through the coax cable, but then I could illegally get court TV, which is now true TV, and Food Network. And I watched a load of Food Network. And I re and I'd always had like culinary ability. And at this point, was watching it, and I thought, you know what, Be like being a food host. It kind of combines entertainment and food, these two things that I'm passionate about that I kind of know a decent amount about. Okay, this is what I want. How do I get there? Anyway, yeah, man, I got agents coming out of Yale, did a bunch of regional theater again, worked at a bunch of red, worked at Ono for China Grill Management, worked at Samba, worked at Sushi Hana on the West Side, and um, a lot of catering. And then when I got Man versus Food, um, so it was, it was coming into the fifth year and I wasn't where I wanted to be financially. I wasn't where I wanted to be professionally yet. And so I knew I needed to transition. I didn't want to wait till the fifth year was up. And so a buddy I used to drink at at the bar across the street from my house was the director for Madison Square Garden Television. And the day I shit you not, the day I had gone through like the drug test and the whole thing that I already had to do. But the day I did my final screen test for Man vs. Food, um, which, by the way, I, I was the first person to use that title on camera. It was originally called Pig Out, the show. But it was Valentine's oh, Day, 2008. Valentine's Day. And because the first episode premiered December of 08, I remember saying, oh, it's a whole new Valentine's Day massacre here on the Lower East Side. It's really funny, man. If I can inspire anybody with this story, I hope it works. So I went the day before to Katz's, and Katz's is not a cheap meal, many stretch of the imagination. And I went there, and I was so broke. Oh, so fucking broke. And I remember I took a pad, and I interviewed anyone behind the counter that would talk to me, so I could get as much info as I could. Did shitloads of research on it. Because we had to come up with our own intro read. And I had a job at a local gym um, earning peanuts. I just did it for the gym membership. I had kind of engineered this audition, you know, with everything I had. And I was doing a play at Ellis Island at the time. And I was Seth Rogen and Jimmy Kimmel's size double for Condé Nast shoes when both of them were chunky. <laughs> I remember I went to Katz's and I said, oh man, it'd be dope if I like, I reveal that I have a Katz's shirt. So what I did was I bought a t-shirt and I was not pleased to spend that much money on a t-shirt when I had so little. And, um, for a little while I was living on leftover, the leftover bread and the leftover soup for my friend's restaurant. I would, you know, my pride, I would come towards the end of the night and he was very sweet. He'd like put a couple containers aside. And that's what I lived on. Um, it was really, it was really scary times. 
and I got this t-shirt and I went home and I cut the neck out of the t-shirt with some scissors and I went to the laundromat near my house and I spent five bucks again, killing me because I was so broke. And I washed it over and over again so it looked weathered. And at the end of my opening read, I go, oh, and if you think I'm reading this off a cue card or I'm just a big fan of Katz's, I unzipped my hoodie and I went, big fan. So I went about the thing. I ate the challenge. I had to show up for my first day at MSG. And I told my boy Kyle, I'm like, dude, I just auditioned for this show on Travel Channel. And I had to eat like a double Reuben French fries and like drink a cream soda and all this shit. I said, I, I, I honestly, like, I think I might have like popped a rib or some shit. Like I'm in a bad way. Oh my God. He said, you know what? It's such an honest excuse. I'm going to let you go. Cause I've never heard like gluttony used as an excuse to get out of work. And flash forward to the, uh, the end of season one in Minneapolis. I'm there with the executive vice president uh, of the network and he's telling me how the show was actually meant for someone else. And then they saw my screen test and they're like, who the fuck is Adam Richmond, you know? And by then having kept the food journal in college, having worked at restaurants, having done regional theater around the country and try regional food. Now my screen tests, they were asking about regional food and I knew it. Culinary anthropology, well, I had gone to the library to learn it. I was inspired by Alton Brown and uh, Good Eats. So I began learning that and whatever. And so finally, end of season one, we're in Minneapolis. Charlie Parsons turns to me and goes, you know, we were thinking about this show for the guy who used to host Human Weapon. And we called in all these guys and competitive eaters and NFL players. And you just kind of jumped off the screen. I said, no, thank you. He said, but you know the moment that really we all said, this is our guy. You know when you unzip that hoodie and you were like, you had your old t-shirt on? We're like, ah, oh, this is that guy. I'm like, about that t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Adam, man, do you believe you were born to do what you do? Or do you think that it was made over time? Probably to an extent born to be an entertainer. But I think getting to where I got achieving what I got and shaping what I was born with took work. So you're born. Born to be an entertainer, but to get where I am, I think that you, that you, you're a lump of clay. Shaping the lump of clay is what makes a success. You know, I had a really great mentor who once said at uh, Yale, he, and Nick, I have been teaching at Yale longer than I have been alive. Um, he said, you know, you're not here to apply stuff. You're here to get stuff out of the way. Like like Michelangelo, you know, he said that when they were commenting on the David and he said the sculpture was always there, I just chipped away the excess marble in front of it. And um, I had this really great mentor who said, um, there's a difference between talent and craft. Talent you either have or don't. And that's probably the born. Craft is something you learn. And... Like you have a tremendous athletic ability, but you chose to learn the disciplines of Muay Thai. You chose to learn about kinesiology and fitness and diet and the way they all interlock and rest and the way the human mechanism works. That's craft. And so 
I think that there are things we may have an ability for, an affinity for, like can take to certain things like a duck to water with whatever for whatever reason. But there's a you know the the dean of the drama school once told me there's a reason why, and I'm going to judge the numbers because I don't remember them exactly. Something like fifteen percent of the actors' equity membership accounts for eighty percent of the work. He said, "Why? Because these fifteen percent are the most talented people in the world." He said, "No, because there's a degree of effort and degree of craft of knowing how to apply to pursue an action within a given set of circumstances, which is ultimately what acting is, and like that's the craft you have to learn. So you could have all the mm -hmm. talent." and all the imagination in the world. And that's the, the two things I think I was born with. A bit of the gift of gab, obviously. A little gregariousness. A little bit of imagination, probably spurred on by the fact that I'm an only child and I was spent a lot of time alone as a kid. And then I chose to learn culinary craft. Learned how to become, you know, a maker of sushi. Learned how to become... um you know, a good front of house person, learn how to be a better line cook. And then all of a sudden, when I'm able to push exposition and make a really complex recipe seem fun and inviting, that's where the craft and the, the craft and the, the talent, I guess, if I flatter myself to say so, like that's where they combine. That's where the born meets the maid. You you have what you're born with, but you make it into something substantial. Um, and I've been very fortunate because I'm well aware of the fact that because of the life I was born into and who my relatives were, that I was afforded, and the color of my skin even, that I was afforded many opportunities that I otherwise might not have been and things might have been a whole lot easier for me. You know, being a white male that was pursuing the acting craft. Um, you know, I, I had a, a very close friend in my class who was saying in how February's uh, Black History Month, if I'm not mistaken. And he said, you know, that's when like all the regional theaters do their black play. And if you miss that, you're done. Because there wasn't a lot of open-minded casting like there is now, you know, with an eye towards ethnic and ability-wise, uh, adding diversity. I, I'm like, yeah, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm so, I'm so excited to have been able to listen to you tell this story, dude. I, I don't, I, 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 I don't think anybody's been able to hear a story or your story in such, in such detail before. You are, you are a special human being and you are a very, very unique guy. And, um, and you've done some awesome, awesome, awesome things throughout your your life and your career and um you know i guess the, the way i'd like to leave this is is if you could give a piece of advice um that maybe not necessarily uh was given to you or maybe it was given to you but a piece of advice that you like to pass on um i think that that would be a nice way to finish so there's a poem called the desiderata I think it's in the 60s. My folks used to have it on our wall, like on a plaque. I highly recommend you read it. It's a great ethos to live by. It sounds like bullshit, but I went to one of the historically black colleges in Atlanta for broadcast training, Park Atlanta, 
John Harris was this brilliant teacher there. And he gave this, um, I don't know, photocopy. I still have the same one. It's got like Adam Richmond class, whatever the hell on the top of it. I still have it. And it's from the Columbia School of Journalism. And it said, talent alone will not get you there. Wasted talent is almost a proverb. But determination, hard work, and persistence are omnipotent. And there's just no replacing that. And if I could turn to like my college self, it's just you have to be your own best friend, kind to yourself, and have confidence in yourself. I've realized now throughout my life, my dating life, my auditioning life, having confidence. Because if you have conviction in what you're saying, other people can believe in what you're saying. So I guess that's it. Believe. It sounds so silly. But it really, it's, it's self-love, self-belief. I used to get so down on myself and say such horrible things to myself. And my friend's wife said, you know, if someone else said those things to you, you would kick their ass. So I, you have to practice self-mastery, sure, but self-love. Because you're, you have to live inside that head 24 hours a day. You better make sure that's a place you want to live. And if it's not, you have the power. And my mom's big expression to me, you know what? I'm going to leave you my mom's advice and then I'll shut the fuck up. <laughs> I love it. Go confidently in the direction of your dreams. Adam Richmond, you are a legend. Love you, buddy. And uh, I cannot thank you enough for spending the time with me tonight. Um, I wish you safety, health, and wellness. I love you very much, man. Thank you. Love thank you, you too, man. You. And lots of love to your family. Please stay safe and come back to New York safe. I will do, sir. Godspeed, buddy. All right, guys, that was an incredible conversation with Adam Richmond. I mean, that man has such the ability to tell a story. He literally brought us back to as early as he can remember. Um, and his life in Brooklyn as a kid growing up uh, and, and having sort of this entrepreneurial um it's like this entrepreneurial drive from a very early age, which I totally identify with. Um, and then he just he talks to us about just sort of his 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 need to entertain, and um, and and he really sort of broke down the uh, the born and made component, which I thought was done so eloquently. Um, but the guy is a is a legend, and it was such a pleasure to talk to him and to hear how he. Um, to hear how his journey has just is just just gone and, and and sort of taken a few different paths throughout the way, but but he ended up really nailing it and sticking to his guns in the world of acting and 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 combining two of his passions that he loved obviously so much between his his childhood sort of culinary excursions through his family and his desire to be in front of the screen. And he combined them and became one of the biggest uh, food TV personalities that we all know and love today. So uh, it was incredible speaking to Adam Richmond. And uh, I hope you got something good out of the episode because I certainly know that I did. That's it for this episode of Born or Made, ladies and gents. I hope our discussion inspired you to take action and chase your own success. Set goals and work towards them. I would be incredibly grateful if you shared our podcast with your friends. Be sure to subscribe so you're notified every time we drop a new episode. 
help us out by leaving a positive review and a five-star rating. That would mean the absolute world to me. It really helps the podcast grow. And finally, I'd love to keep the conversation going with you. So you could follow us at BornerMade on Instagram. And you can also follow me at Michael Chernow on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and TikTok. We really appreciate you tuning in and uh, can't wait to see you on the next one.